You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Good morning. It is a wonderful morning. No wind. This is like perfect. We could freeze this right now. We'd be loving that. So good to be with you. Uh, Some of you were at the conference yesterday down in Oxnard. It was great. It was called Stay True. Our own Pastor Rick spoke. A lot of pastors did a great job, but I know a lot of you were there. I saw you there. And what I loved about this, and obviously I, I did this sermon prior to going yesterday, but it brought everything into a clarity for me. The, the conference was based on where our culture and society has gone in the last 20 to 30 years. And it is diametrically opposed to Christ, to the Christian message, and becoming more so. One of the examples that Pastor Lance Ralston gave yesterday was, think about this, if 20 years ago I would have told you that a sixth grade boy could stand up and say, no, I'm a girl because I feel like that, and there'd be laws or people backing him up, you'd say, you're nuts. That's where we are. Things that I think for most of us that were inherently moral or good are no longer. It's the opposite. So us as Christians, we have to stand out. We are swimming against the flow. And every day is our opportunity to stand for Christ. And so I've titled my message, Letting Christ Be the Fulfillment. What I'd like to do is break it down into two parts, kind of a offensive position and a defensive position. I don't just want you to go home and feel good, oh, that's a good message. I want to give you some things you can pragmatically do to stand against what's going on. So, Lord, it's in that vein that that I stand before you. Now move me out of the way and fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to start with the old problem of temptation and sin. Excuse me for being repetitious. Maybe this is really old news, Genesis 3, to a lot of you. But let me tell you, I bet you didn't know that the Ranch Church has started a school of ministry. Oh, yes, we have. Uh, Pastor Rick is leading us through, I think it's an eight- to nine-week course, and there'll be an opportunity for some of you to become involved if you want in the fall. There's some of us going through as a beta class to kind of say, okay, this works, this doesn't work. But it has been fascinating One of the topics that we covered that I'm going to get into is the whole topic in Genesis of sin and why and how does that work in our life. And this is basically my defense. This is my defense, and it's standing up to temptations. As you know, there's three ways you can sin or be tempted. You know this. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. It looks like this. The lust of the flesh can be food, drugs, sex, alcohol, because you can abuse those things. They feel good to the flesh, lust of the flesh. Lust of the eye. Oh, you see that cool red Ferrari parked in the parking lot? Man, I love that. Or that new outfit in the store window. Or that great diamond ring. Beautiful, I gotta have that. That is lust of the eyes. And finally, pride of life. This is sneaky, pride of life. You're in a company, but you need to get to that CEO position. You 
I don't care who I step on, what I do, I need to be number one. I need to be the main man or the MVP of the team or the valedictorian, which in itself it can be good, but how you get there and your motives are everything. Basically, I need my name in lights. People got to know who I am. I need my name in the paper. That is pride of life. And if you notice, Bible students, as Eve stood in front of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she saw that the apple was good for food. Flesh, lust of the flesh. And it was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eye. And it was desirable for gaining wisdom. It's a pride of life. Very simple, right there. There's no three other three ways. And then the New Testament, think of Jesus in the desert. He was fasting and praying for 40 days. And Luke 4, for instance, Satan takes him out in the desert and says, hey, why don't you make those rocks bread and have something to eat? Blessed of the flesh. Took him up to a high place and looked at all the kingdoms of the world, bright and shiny. He said, I'll give you these. Lust of the eye. And finally, to the top of the temple, he said, throw yourself off because angels will catch you and you will not strike your foot against the stone. That's the pride of life. And let me tell you, it's a little harder to understand, but in the first century, the temple was the center of Jerusalem, the city. It was the tallest building. All the merchants, all the stores, all the people were at the base of it. So basically, here's what happened. If Jesus would throw himself off, angels would rescue him, gently put him to the ground, and everyone in Jerusalem go, oh my gosh, who are you, dude? You must be special. It's pride of life. And I, I go into repetition because I think in, in our life, those three ways still exist, the only three ways. I believe it serves us well to know which one of those three we are most vulnerable to. There's probably one that you're a little more susceptible. I know mine. I'm not sharing it with you, but, but I know mine. Um, see, you can see it coming. It takes some of uh, Satan's, uh, you know, some of his power, if you will, away. You see it coming. You can ask for prayer. You can pray against it. You can stand against it. But I'll tell you, that's not the reason I'm addressing this, this issue of temptation. There's something much deeper that I want you to take away that you will be able to glorify God with this. For instance, follow me here. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God could have chosen not to put that tree in the garden. Just eliminate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil what you've created is a temptation-free environment. Isn't that wonderful? No sin. Sin eliminated. Sounds great, right? Not so much. This also would have eliminated any way for Adam and Eve to show their obedience and true love for God. That would have been taken away. See, here, here's the truth. In order for love to exist, free will has to exist. In order for love to exist, the option to do exactly the opposite of what God is asking you to do needs to exist, plain and simple. You'll hear people that are not Christians, they'll say, well, if your God's so great, why didn't you just take that away? You don't get it. It needs to be there. It needs to be there. Let me say this, some of you folks with kids, if when your first child was born, the doctor says, hey, we've got this new device, it's this little chip, I can put it in your kid's head, 
The only thing he'll be able to do is obey you. And now and again say, I love you, mommy and daddy. How satisfying would that be if he was a parent? How sad? Not, not much, right? Not much. However, what about when, uh, you know, you don't have that chip put in and your teenage kid has the option to totally go wild and disobey you, but he doesn't because he respects and loves you. Now that's satisfying. That is true love. That is obedience. See, God had to give us free will to give us the opportunity to love him, to worship him, to show him exactly what is here. So the next time, here's what I want you to take away. The next time you face a temptation, please don't look at it as an opportunity or, or to say, well, Satan's taking this opportunity to hammer me. He's using his most powerful weapon against me. No, look at it as an opportunity to love the Lord and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray to the Lord, Lord, let me show you I love you. If you turn it like that, the next time you're tempted, say, this is an opportunity. I tell you, this will not only change and bless your life, it will bring honor and glory to God. Okay, let's shift this thing up. Let's, let's talk about the offense. Now, I, lock, I like the offense. There's a word in the Greek, and this just blesses the heck out of me. The word in the Greek is called plerao, P-L-E-R-O apostrophe O, plerao. And to be honest, many years ago, this word impacted my life greatly. And still to this day, plerao impacts my life. And I think it's going to impact your life too. I think I was made familiar about 1992 in the church that I went uh, before the ranch. And the senior pastor there took a liking to me for some reason and personally discipled me for a number of years. And I think we probably took two years going through the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 5, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 5, 15 through 20. If you want to go there, I'll read it to you. But Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 through 20. And you'll see why this is important. It says exactly this. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the centerpiece to this section is verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. That word filled is plerao. Plerao is the Greek word for filling. And it speaks, the picture that Paul's drawing there is of a, a sail on a ship being filled with the wind. Plerao. It is being filled, causing it to move in a particular direction. Plerao can also be used of filling maybe a cup with a drink or a cart with hay. But the main, uh, I get the main understanding here is to have this wind filling this massive sail and pushing this ship across the lake. Now, at the time, I just thought this meaning was significant because in Ephesians, notice what the outworking of this filling of the Spirit is. It says, 
It says you'll communicate through psalms, hymns, making music, having thanksgiving in your heart, submitting to one another. Basically, what that is, is just enjoying a really blessed relationship amongst believers. When we're filled with the Spirit, good things are going to happen. So again, I draw it back to the main point. This is all accomplished by letting the Holy Spirit fill our sails and propel us in the direction He wants us to go. We give up our desire or our will to take our ship where we want to go, but we let the Holy Spirit fill and guide us with the wind of his divine knowledge and love. That's how I like to define that. He knows better than us, and it is a great life. You let the Spirit fill you, absolutely great things are going to happen. And honestly, that is the secret to a godly life, being filled with the Spirit. But let me say this, as I studied this word more, and this word plerao, it's used in other places in the Bible. And as I studied it, it took on a more profound meaning. Let me share this with you, I think you're gonna like this. For instance, most of us are aware in the Old Testament where we'll have these prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. You're very aware of these, I'm sure. Um, for instance, a couple in Micah, it says Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Do you remember that? In Zechariah, it says that our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. In Isaiah, it says he would be despised and rejected by men, die for sin, and yet be the light of the Gentiles. So these prophecies are also mentioned in the New Testament, aren't they? And when they are mentioned in the New Testament, there's a Greek word that follows these prophecies in the New Testament every time, and it speaks of their fulfillment. It's the word plerao. It's the same word, plerao. It's used every time an Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in the New Testament. It speaks of filling that which was empty. Filling that which was empty. And I think it's a great description. The Old Testament prophecies were like an empty cup until they were plerao'd or filled in the New Testament. It's such an accurate picture. So this side of heaven, not God's side, he knows everything that's going to happen, but this side of heaven, a prophecy is just a word until it is filled or plerao'd. But I think there's something better. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 10, it says this of us, in him you are complete. In him, meaning Jesus, you are complete. You know what that word complete is? Plerao. In him, in him, we are plerao. So listen, listen to this. The word used of Christ fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies is the exact same word used of Christ fulfilling your life. Your life is like an Old Testament prophecy. The same way a prophecy is unfulfilled and empty until its fulfillment, your life was unfulfilled and empty until Christ found you. Can I say that? Every life is a shadow of what it could be because it was created to be plerao'd or filled with Christ. Your life is a prophecy waiting to be fulfilled. Only by asking Jesus in your life 
and living and submitting to him can you have a truly fulfilling life. Jesus is the plerao of your life and your life is a prophecy of him. Your life right now is a prophecy of Jesus. Tell his story well through your life. Can I ask you that? Tell his story well. It would be difficult for me, especially in the time I'm given here, to quantify both the temporal and eternal benefits that having Jesus fill your life brings you or to follow him. But let me point a couple out, please. I think you'll like this. I've always been drawn to Isaiah 53. I mean, it's full of cool stuff, but listen to this. It said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. Some Bibles say, by his stripes we are healed. This is comforting. This is extremely comforting to me, and it should be to you too. But we must remember this. Please remember this. The ultimate plan of God is not divine healing, but divine health. Big difference. It is not divine healing, but divine health. Divine health is your birthright by following Christ. That's a done deal. Isaiah, through the Spirit, what he was saying here, he's telling us, because Jesus was scourged and whipped and suffered on the cross and died on the cross, those are his wounds, that we were healed or saved. We have eternal life, which we all have. That is divine health. And that's what this passage promises, divine health. And unfortunately, and me, uh, many years ago, I was led astray by this, and maybe you can relate. I had people interpreting this verse to me that meant that somehow if you follow Christ, that you will be immediately healed from your infirmities this side of heaven. And the problem is, it's, if that doesn't happen, and I was the recipient of this, I thought, wow, there's a problem with my faith. I don't have enough faith. If I'm not healed, it must be a faith problem on my end. Can I say that's just bad doctrine? That's bad theology and a misunderstanding of Scripture? Now, it is true that God, on occasion, heals immediately. I mean immediately. I'll let my wife tell her own story, but she was healed immediately in ICU, and it was miraculous and crazy. But I know it happens. I'm not discounting that. But can I say this? Immediate healing is an outworking of God's sovereign prerogative, not a byproduct of amount of faith that you have. Separate those two. I don't know about you, but me, at any moment, my faith can ebb and flow. Man, I have good days and bad days. That does not restrict the power of our Lord to heal. And I say yes and amen to that. Let, let, let me go here, and, and, and I'm, I'm kind of heading for home here, but I want to draw, draw your attention to one more place in Scripture. I think it'll be instructive, not only to the faith issue that I've just brought up, but for many other reasons. If you go to John chapter 5, and uh, we will read verses 1 through 16. John chapter 5 Verse 1 through 16. Again, if you don't have a Bible or don't feel like doing it, no worries. I'm going to read it. But let's go with this. John 5, verses 1 through 16. Quick overview. Just quick, quick overview. 
Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me to the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry that mat. Yeah, great, right? I know, no kidding. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Crazy story for a lot of ways. Man, we could spend the next two Sundays breaking that apart. Let me just mention a few things and we'll get on with this. My point is that we can plainly see in no uncertain terms this invalid Jesus healed. He had no idea who Jesus was, had no clue. He certainly had no faith in Jesus. He knew he was healed, had no faith in Jesus. Now, some of you, I, I, I got to clarify myself, or I'm not downplaying the importance of faith. It is very important, very. I, and, I mean, other scriptures say, by so-and-so's faith, they were healed. I get that. Here's my point. I'm just saying that healing is not always reliant on the amount of faith that you have in Jesus. I think there's a couple other interesting observations I'd like to make here. Notice this, that the man had been lame for 38 years. That's the same amount of time the children of Israel wandered in the desert before entering the promised land. Remember, they left Egypt, they were at the base of Sinai for over a year, few of them struck dead, but it was the 38 year period that they were wandering in the desert. Now what I think the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention or making a parallel between these spiritual lame children of Israel, and oh yeah, they were, and this physically lame man at the pool. I think the Jewish mind would, would see that pretty quick. But this is more astonishing to me. Jesus asked this guy, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? Do you want to get well? I mean, first, first reading, it kind of seems cruel and ridiculous but it comes from the lips of our Lord. I can guarantee it was not cruel or ridiculous. Can I say this? I think it's the same question that he asks all of us. He asks all of us the same question. In fact, I'll say this summarizes the great problem in our lives. Do you wanna be well? Do you wanna be well? 
See, for some of us, I know for me it was true, Jesus asked me many times before I came to faith in him. There was many opportunities, but there was at one point he asked, and I said yes. You see, we have to be willing to made well. We have to be willing to be made well. God is a gentleman and will never force his grace or mercy on us, never. And I think there's, there's actually a, a bit of a harder question here that, than we might think initially as you read this and let it soak in. You know that if you say yes to something, you're at the same time saying no to something else, whether you know that or not. You say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And see, for this first century invalid, this was an extremely significant question. At that time in the Middle East, and I, I can say today, and maybe at some places here in our community, when this man was healed, he lost a very lucrative way to make a living by begging off those that pass by. See, when you stop begging, you're forced to work or at least be more responsible. It's a big question. And I'll say this aside, next time you're leaving one of those big uh, shopping centers and you see a dude with a cardboard sign says, we'll work for food, and maybe his hat out, say, hey, I've got some work for you. See what he says. It might surprise you. It might surprise you. I hope he takes, I hope he takes your work, but more often than not, um, there's, some, there's, a, there's a spiritual manifestation behind that. So this man that was laying by the pool of, of Bethesda, he knew if he was healed, he would have to take on much larger responsibilities. And for some of us, I, I believe we're already Christians, no two ways about it, we are saved. Jesus will reveal areas in our life that still need some change. Can I say that? We still need some change. Jesus will never leave us as he found us. He'll require things of us if we want to follow him. He most definitely will. Some of these commitments might, they might take more time. They might take some of your resources. But he's asking you, do you want to change? We all need to answer that question. Do you want to change? Okay, so lastly, let me, let me direct you to this. As Jesus asked this invalid laying by the pool this interesting question, the man doesn't give the Lord some faith-filled answer, did he? Not at all, but he does two things I want to draw your attention to that are critical. The invalid does two things that are critical and are still critical today. He looks to Jesus and he obeys him when he says, do you want to pick up your mat? This invalid knew he could not help himself. He knew he could not help himself. And I don't care where any of us are in our faith journey, we need to recognize we cannot fix ourselves. There's just no way. We cannot fix ourselves. We need to look to Jesus and do what he says. Very simple. Look to Jesus, do what he says. And the reason I'm so dogmatic about this, I think it's simple, but it's effective. And I find it in other places in the Bible. 
Some of you will recognize this from Numbers 21. Do you remember the children of Israel being knuckleheads and rebellious? God uh, puts this a bunch of poisonous, gnarly vipers. It start, they start biting him. They're dying. They freak out. They turn to Moses. Moses creates this bronze snake, if you will, a bronze serpent. And he tells people, just look at it. All the people had to do, these sinful people laying on the ground, not a lot of faith there. They just had to look, and they were healed. What's significant about this, our Lord Jesus references this in John 3. He draws the comparison between looking at that snake and looking at him for salvation. It's, it's, it's there for a reason. John 3, uh, 14 through 15. Next time you're there, look at it. And lastly, I guess, you know, and I looked at this and I said, well, darn, that is true. I, I, I look at this lame man and I learned that this is kind of an unpleasant dude, man. He's hard-headed. This is not a, a, a very great dude for, the, for these two reasons. Verse 7 implies that he's the kind of man that no one would even help him in the pool. I mean, if you're lame, you got friends like, hey, bro, can you drag me down to the pool? He must have been the kind of guy no one even wanted to help this guy. And, and he'd been there for a while. And I notice he never thanks Jesus for this. Not one word of gratitude out of this guy's mouth. Um, and also, so Jesus finds him later on and says, hey, stop sinning or something greater is going to happen. Something worse could happen. Tells me the guy's still sinning. The guy's still not quite right, even after being healed. I'll say this. This man was, was weak and without spiritual conviction. He was weak and without spiritual conviction. In spite of all that, Jesus loved this man enough to save him. This man was saved. Now, I find that a bit comforting. Honestly, I find that a bit comforting. Because when I honestly look at my life, I can easily ask the question, why did he save me? Why did he save me? And even after we've known Christ for a considerable amount of time, we come to see our, our inconsistencies, or at least I do, inconsistencies in my walk, my lack of thanksgiving for him. Man, it's a miracle he doesn't drop me right here and right now. Maybe the same for some of you, but he doesn't. He loves us. He loves us. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.